Building everything for someone is generally speaking better than building something for everyone. The only caveat is if you have something for everyone, you'll be able to get in to any business out there, but you'll probably struggle to stick. If you build everything for someone, you'll have a very specific market, so most of the people you have nothing for, but for the people you have built for, you will stick like glue. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Unless you've been living under a rock, this has not been an ideal year for tech companies. Uh, things have not been easy. Um, we have seen layoffs, stock crashes, recessions, hiring freezes, uh, contractions, churns, and all that sort of stuff has been happening in our industry, and we've been somehow trying to deal with it. So why should I talk about this? Well, 2021, for many of us, was the best of times. It was a very good year to be operating a tech business. Uh, literally, everything could not be better. Funding rounds were through the roof. Consumption was through the roof. If you look at how many investments were made in 2021, it certainly stands out as a remarkable year. We were doing more rounds. We were valuing companies higher than ever before. In 2021, we minted more unicorns than any point by a substantial margin. And we were doing more bigger rounds as well. The average size of a venture capital round was way, way bigger than we had ever seen. And all of that led us to believe we were all geniuses. Uh, you know, basically, if me and you start a company tomorrow, our first round would have been a secondary, we'd take two million off the table, we'd go and hire a few people. It just couldn't have been easier in so many ways. The problem when we looked at our businesses was, because so, like, not just like, tech startups, but all tech startups' customers, and often all of their customers' customers, were doing so well off all of the effectively cheap or free money that was being uh, given into the system, as a result, of course, sales went up, of course, demand went up. Everything looked good last year. The challenge was, I think, when a lot of us looked at our businesses, we, we were thinking we were genius, when in reality, we were kind of more effectively like this subway guy. I don't know if you've seen this meme, but the guy who thinks that he helps the trains leave the station. And uh, he, he, like, you know, I think for a lot of folks, they were claiming credit for things that were happening in their business that was really nothing to do with them at all. And then that brings us to this year, uh, the worst of times. And I say we hope, because we really hope this is the low point, but it can get a lot worse too. And what the low point really means is, uh, as we, we know, uh, like the Bessemer Cloud Index is a good measure of how all of your companies are being valued. And you can see we had some good times, and now we've had some bad times too. Multiples have fallen from like 20x to like 5x. Generally speaking, the market and the way in which the market values uh, tech companies specifically, by the way, tech companies are the top line, the blue line, the one that totally broke away and then fell back to reality. That has led us to where we are today, which means, as always, we're in trouble because we've raised a lot of money, or like if you have raised a lot of money, you now have this valuation to explain, and you have this chart to explain, and the two things aren't compatible. You somehow it's no longer stomachable to be doing $1 million in revenue and be valued at $500 million. And we need to make that make sense. Now, thankfully, whenever times are tough, you can always count on the venture capitalists to start blogging. 
And they blog, and they write things like this. Do smart things, don't do dumb things, stop spending money on shit that doesn't work, only spend all the usual advice gets rolled out again and again and again. And what that really means is that as founders, we all start to worry about all of these metrics yet again. Now, practically speaking, we should have been worried about these the entire time, but when times are good, you tend not to look too closely at the bad news. When times are bad, you tend to actually have a look uh, and realize maybe buying customers that are worth 50 cents for $4 isn't a great idea. And the one thing I can say that's true invariant, whether you're in good times or bad times, is that healthy growth will fix all of these problems. And that's the real challenge for us all, is to find the healthy growth within our business, accepting that we might have added some unhealthy growth along the way, especially when times were good. So as we look towards planning 2023, which is going to be next year for you all, maybe you have a round to raise, maybe you have targets to hit, maybe you have some sort of uh, next sort of scenario to get through, uh, we'll talk about what I think you should be doing. The first piece is to really work out what is working and what's working particularly well for us. So during the good times, businesses tend to like widen their appetite. And a lot of us would have done this. If you go and raise a big round, you'll tend to be like, right, now we've got 20 million. We should spend a lot on trying a lot of new stuff. After all, we have this massive valuation to hit, right? So you get into this mode of experimentation, this mode of like, let's just try stuff, throw it out there, see what happens, see what sticks. You know, maybe, maybe it's a bit unprofitable now, but it'll work out eventually. And generally speaking, what that does is it will grow your revenue at a high cost, and at some point, you're going to realize that we probably overshot the mark. And then in bad times, you move out of that why not phase into a why phase, or you know, we'll build it and they will come into something like, let's see what they came for us to, uh, to buy, and then let's make sure we have that thing for them. Uh, you also move to a mode of like, let's make sure the existing business is healthy before we try anything else new. And you also start to think about time frames because time is an important concept when you have a runway. You need, to, you need these experiments to pay off because money isn't infinite. So for a lot of businesses I spoke to within my portfolio, what it looks like is they were here. They had three great years. 2021 caught them by surprise. It was a phenomenal year. And they just thought, well, clearly I'm a genius. Clearly this is going to be an, at least a multi-billion dollar business. And then 2022 came, and it wasn't quite the year they'd hoped, or it's forecasted maybe not to be quite the year they'd hoped. And based on that, they're starting to form sober projections of maybe what 2023 might look like. Now, all of a sudden, you start to realize this isn't as, you know, this might not be the, like, the decacorn that we thought it was going to be. Now, the point is, and what we'll talk about is the idea that it, within your business, there are really, really healthy cores. There always are, otherwise you wouldn't be able to afford a ticket to Sastock, you know? Uh, within your business, there are also pretty mediocre uh, parts of your business that aren't working. And the challenge is that if you add like this mediocrity to your business that is otherwise healthy, the average of your business starts to look less healthy. Or put another way, if you add shit to your business, you'll get a shit business. Right? So if, someone, if you have a fast-growing $5 million business, $5 million revenue, and I offer you a bag of $1 million worth of additional revenue that doesn't grow, that sounds like it should be good. But actually, it's not as good as you'd think. You now are a slower-growing business with no leverage on this existing bag of revenue. 
And that just means that you've potentially brought on new types of customers, new types of product lines, new types of marketing channels that don't work as well. And one way to think about this is if you had a healthy business, your ambition kicked in, so you added a lot of ideas on top, and the net, net is you have a chunk of your business that's a little bit shit. And the idea is we need to like whittle that out and actually invest in the pieces of your business that do work. So the most important thing to do to understand how your business works is to slice your business and learn as much as you can about what I would call like your bullseye customers. What are the type of customer that you will just always win? You would have absolute confidence that you will win. Like, you know, as an example, like uh, Figma take, you know, Figma knew going into any internet startup that was using Photoshop that we're going to win, full stop. It wasn't a discussion. Their confidence was 100%. You need to find those customers where you know that you can be strongest. What vertical are they in? What size segment are they? What source? Like, how do they find your business? What products do they buy? Do they sign up through sales? Or do they sign up through self-serve? What features of your product do they use? Which team in the company actually uses your product, and how often do they use it? If they churn, why do they churn? How much do they churn? What, why do they expand, if they expand at all? And then who do you compete with, and how do you win? And you want to keep drilling in to get absolute specificity here. In specificity lies your power, and it's okay if you have 10 million of revenue, and you found your bullseye customer, but it only explains 4 million or 5 million. That's fine. Because if you know exactly where you can win, you can invest hard there. You would rather be a 5 million business going, growing fast than a 10 million business growing slow, because speed will be taken care of, will take care of the time or the gap very quickly. And it's really important to realize that. So I really encourage you to zoom in on what customers, if you had to bet your mortgage or your car or your house, what customer type would you say, let me pitch them and I guarantee you we will win? That's the customers you need to invest and build a business around. Your best customers are the ones that you can sustainably acquire, who use your product deeply and get differentiated value. All three of these things are really important, right? You have to be able to sustainably acquire them. It can't just be friends and family. It can't be just a one-off coupon. It needs to be some route to market. Either it's virality or it's like some uh, reseller partner or it's some type of brand campaign that you found that really hits the spot. They have to use your product a lot. If they just use your product in a really thin way, then it's going to be an easy product to copy. That's just the reality of software. If, if there's just one specific feature, people are going to realize this dude's making a load of money off a very small bit of code. We should build that too and charge half the price. That's how software works. And lastly, they have to get differentiated value. So it can't just be something they could get from anyone. Otherwise, you end up in perfect competition, which is just a crapshoot. The single biggest thing you've done, if you've harmed your business, has been adding complexity to it. And the complexity comes from all of these ideas of let's try and grow, let's try and expand, let's try and do more stuff. Startups don't die by homicide, they die by suicide. And the suicide is usually comes from making things more and more complex. Complex ads, complex landing pages, pitches, sign-up flows, sales routing, onboarding, UI, how you sell, how you cross-sell, how you upsell, how you do a roadmap, how you design your org chart. All of that stuff just slows you down, makes you harder to use, harder to buy, harder to engage with. There are people in your company who will love complexity. 
that's because it's where if you hire them from a big company, they just eat and drink the stuff, and they will tell you every single thing needs to be more complicated than it is, and they will encourage you to this world on the right where everything is messed up with everything else, and they will push back on any narrative that says, you know, we have one product and we sell it really well, and here's who we sell it to, and here's why we sell it, and here's how we pitch it. They hate that. It puts them out of a job occasionally. They're like the program manager for advanced product integration complexity or something like that. And they don't like hearing the idea that there's a simpler business to be had here. Now, where does complexity come from? Well, you might have any sort of decision or workflow in your, in your business where you say, all right, customer starts here and they go over here to step two, and that's pretty straightforward and you know, it works perfectly. Now, somebody comes along and says, well, there might be a second business to be built here that looks something like two but slightly different. And you say, okay, and, well, and we have some models and spreadsheets that suggest that this could be incremental revenue. And you say, okay. And then you find yourself in this meeting where they're saying to you, so the decision is, should we attract more customers or not? And you're like, ooh, <laughs> I guess we should attract more customers. And just to make it easier, they bring you all these fucking charts that are like, hey, here's all the reasons and projections and forecasts that tell you this is going to be great. And meanwhile, all you have to com combat this is a sense of, this is more complicated than I thought it would be. That's, you know, there's something like not quite sitting well with me here. But you relent, and you go, and now you've got this. And if you keep going, you get a big surprise, which is this. Every decision process, should we hire or fire? Should we add a product line or not? Should we change from self-serve to sign up? How many ways should we sign up? Should we do reseller or not? They're all just complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity. And Aaron Levy, who's the CEO of Box, has like a multi-tweet rant about this topic, but there's a lot of good things in here. The one thing I'd encourage you to think about is every single choice anyone makes, either your employees or your customers, reduces throughput. It just makes things less likely to happen. Complexity kills productivity, and simplicity causes speed, which causes productivity. And you should just always think about that whenever you decide to do it. An interesting discussion between Mark Pincus from uh, Zynga and Steve Sanofi from Microsoft is really interesting. He says, every single choice, just imagine you're going to lose half your customers along the way. Um, Sanofsky adds that it's not just that, it's also the usability. People just give up on things when they get too hard. And perhaps the most interesting point from Spencer here, he says, Friction isn't linear. Adding two or three more choices to a thing doesn't degrade it by 10% and 10% and 10%. It's actually, actually exponential. It goes from 10 to 40 to 80. It actually kills you in that regard. So instead of saying, should we attract more customers or not, you should actually say, should we attract more customers but risk losing customers slowly through a drip feed of exponential complexity, or should we keep our funnel the way it is and simplify what's already good? And that's the actual calculus you need to do whenever anyone is trying to make your healthy business uh, grow faster through additional complexity. It always looks good in the short term. Always. It's the long term is what will kill you. When you have your bullseye customer and you've removed the complexity, you then focus on what's working. So here's an example scenario from a company I recently invested in. Our best customers are B2B SaaS, less than 500. They hear about us through the product management community. They buy us to formalize road mapping. They sign up through self-serve, but then they convert over to sales-led, blah, 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 blah. Now, when you look at this bullseye customer, it's a narrow set, but it's a set where they have very, very high confidence that they win. And when you have that, like they've done their homework, you realize that there's a real opportunity to just refine and perfect this. 
So you ask yourself, what are the most important things that every function can do to nail it for this customer? That's everyone from sales through product uh, all the way through. Um, ensure you're doing all of them in order of impact. Do not post-rationalize. Do not say, well, it turns out we were already doing a thing that kind of helped that customer, so we should just keep doing it, right? That's the easiest thing to do. The actual approach is what is the most important thing to do, that, given the resources we have, to maximize throughput for that customer where we know we will always win. And that's how you perfect your sort of company around these customer archetypes. Put another way, you invest in these and you do not invest in the gray lines instead. Now, if you want to grow your business, generally speaking, you have five options, or sorry, four options. Well, five if you count what I just said, which is work on your current healthy business. You can go up market. You can sell more stuff to your existing buyers. You can sell more stuff to new buyers within your existing customers. Or you can package your product for specific new verticals. They're generally speaking the options that you can pursue to grow new lines and new engines of revenue within your business. I have to warn you, all of these approaches are hard, expensive, and they might add complexity. And you have to understand that that complexity has to be ROI positive, okay? Otherwise, you're just going to end up recreating the problem sets all over again. So put another way, don't do this unless your core business is good, right? You can take your product up market. The reward will be higher ACV, lower churn, stickier usage, longer contracts. The challenges will be brand new features, uh, heavy platform investment, endless requests for customization. Uh, the marketing will be different. You're going to need to talk to analysts. You're going to need different, different like, types of campaigns to pitch ROI. Less like going on product hunt, more like talk, talking to industry analysts. The purchase journey gets complicated. Uh, sales will have longer buying cycles. They'll have buying committees. The rip and replacement challenges will be harder. And support will have to deal with SLAs, ProServe, customer success, or whatever. But that is an option. I frame it in terms of what's good and what's hard, because it's not a no-brainer. It's just something, it, it, you know, if you've got to bite off this extra revenue, do it with the full context of what you're actually biting off. Otherwise, if you think of it as just being like, more money from bigger customers, duh, you will make some bad mistakes. Similarly, build more for your current buyers. So what's good about this is, you already have the customers, you're just going to increase your average contract value. You're going to improve your product posture because you're actually becoming more, like a, more of a dominant platform and you're, you have an easy route to market. The challenge is, obviously, you have to build new product, you have a new competitor set, you probably need new headcount, your R&D cost will, will rise. Um, from a marketing point of view, you now have to create a brand umbrella that somehow makes sense that you sell like, you know, expense tracking and you know, whatever, payroll software or something like that. Um, from a sales opportunity, there's a new challenge or an opportunity for relationship managers. They have to earn their money in a different way. And from a support point of view, you've got more shit to support. You've got like, now which product is this and how, what, what plan are you on and all that sort of stuff. You can build for new buyers within your current customers. So the challenge, uh, sorry, the, the good thing here is you get more ACV from current customers. Uh, this can help you go wall to wall within a business and ultimately become a, a source of truth or a primary platform. Uh, and there'll be compound benefits. So for example, if you we're a sales software and you added marketing, you now actually are probably better at both because of the fact that you share a record. Um, the challenge here is it's a brand new buyer, so it's a brand new landscape. And you'll be constrained by your current ar architectural choices. Uh, that's a constraint on you that will actually slow you down, that would not slow down a new startup. Uh, from a marketing point of view, you have an even higher level brand challenge 
you need to work out, like, is your current company like an endorser for this sub-brand that represents this new product? Is it all called one thing? Is it all intercom? Or is it all like Salesforce or whatever? Or is there sub-brands within it? From a sales point of view, you need to make sure that your current product champion has the clout to get you cross-functional introductions and connect you with new people. And from a support point of view, you've fundamentally two different customer types. And that ultimately means you have to start thinking, should we have two different sales teams, one for each product? Should we have two different support teams, one for each product, et cetera? And then lastly, uh, you can uh, build for like new, uh, sorry, this should say verticals. You can build new products, sorry, you can package your existing products for new verticals. Now, the nice thing about going after a new vertical is often there's little product work to be done. You just need to say, we're intercom for hotels. It's still intercom, just happens to work for hotels, right? You can do that type of thing. Uh, you'll find less competition in niches, because people that generally wouldn't ever go and build something like an intercom for hotels or whatever. Uh, so you'll often find you're pushing an open door. The challenge might be that you have to do some platform work. You might have to build some very specific integrations for that vertical, like integration with like booking hotel systems or whatever. Um, from a marketing point of view, you should assume nothing you're doing will work. You need to like, go to hotel conferences or whatever it might be, right? It's an entirely different challenge. Uh, from a sales point of view, there's often new domain uh, expertise required because no one can speak the language of this new vertical. However, you know, the, the upside is you don't have to do a lot on the product if you get this right, except for a few integrations. So as you weigh this up, these options to grow your business, two things I'd say, for, uh, maybe three things I'd say. One is, Building everything for someone is, generally speaking, better than building something for everyone. The only caveat is, if you have something for everyone, you'll be able to get into any business out there, but you'll probably struggle to stick. If you build everything for someone, you'll have a very specific market, so most of the people you have nothing for, but for the people you have built for, you will stick like glue. Separate, secondly, you, you want, generally speaking, to have the smallest product possible. This is like a, a weird thing that our industry forgets. You generally want to get as much cash as possible out of as little code as possible. The only exception here is that if you go too extreme, you, get, you can be quite copyable or your moat can break, like people can find a way to just duplicate what you have. But you do not want a big, massive product unless it's paying for itself. And a lot of the times, these products just get bigger, not better. And then lastly, I'll just say, beware the asymmetry of mediocrity. Uh, one way I describe this is if you drop a cockroach into a bowl of strawberries, the whole thing is disgusting. If you drop a strawberry into a bowl of cockroaches, it doesn't make a difference. That's the asymmetry. When you attach a mediocre line of revenue to a healthy business, it damages it a, a lot. If you attach one little bit of health to a weak business, it doesn't help a lot either, right? So just beware that if there are bad businesses inside your good business, they're actually dragging you down. They are not for free. So if you're looking to re-accelerate or accelerate, first find your strong core business, do the slicing, do the homework, find your bullseye customers, strip all the complexity away, focus your entire company around nailing that specific thing, and only then should you go pursuing the new verticals, uh, sorry, the new revenue opportunities, which is upmarket, more stuff for your current buyer, more stuff for new buyers within your current business, or tailoring for her. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS conferences around the world.
Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sastop.com.